1: to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, an actual self-suggestion with quite the incredible story and a dynamic career that spans the weirdest of all places that you'd put together. We'll get to him in just a moment. But our normal announcements, as always, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, HazardGround.com. And click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or into the Sponsors tab. It redirects you to Amazon. You do all your normal Amazon shopping, we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground as well follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews. So, so important we give you these reminders every single week and I know you guys probably fast forward through them, but just in case we're hitting some of our newer audience we'd really love your support with some Apple reviews. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show and certainly uh, help grow this Hazard Ground community. All right, this week's guest, again a a self-suggestion which we love. Please guys, if you have a story you want to Share with us. Send an email to producer at hazardground.com. We would love to tell your story. But this is an individual who spent 26 years in the U.S. Army and retired as a lieutenant colonel, spending time on both the enlisted and and the officer side, multiple combat deployments, including places like Panama, the Gulf War, obviously Iraq and Afghanistan, but also was part of the L.A. riots and the federal force called up there back in the early 90s. He also worked as a staff secretary for the Office of the Vice President, worked for Hillary Clinton as well throughout his career, all this stuff in uniform. He's a double cancer survivor, which is amazing. Uh, He's currently an environmental law attorney and as well, putting together Betty advocacy groups uh, that involve alpacas. Go figure this out, guys. This is an amazing individual. He's Jaime Martinez joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Uh, We were talking before the show, the LA riots. I'm like, wait a minute. I I was young when that happened. Not like infant young, but I was... You know, single digits, teenager, preteen kind of, uh, and I, I remember it on the news. I just don't remember all the intricacies of it. But nonetheless, and somehow between uh, double cancer diagnosis, you managed to get a law degree. So uh, unreal stuff there, Jaime. Mean. But uh, again, start back at the beginning for me. 26 years in the infantry. How and why did you get in the Army?
0: I'm a uh, first-generation born Peruvian American. My uh, mother and father, my brother and my sister, immigrated here in the early 60s and I was born. And uh, first to uh, go to college at Eastern Illinois University, a small college in Central Illinois, I was born and raised in Chicago. And um, I quickly realized that I had an affinity to um, strong organization and leadership. I learned that as a Boy Scout, and as an Eagle Scout, a Scout Camp uh, counselor. And I arrived on campus uh, 17, turning 18 uh, by myself and uh, started noticing that there was uh, quite a few folks walking around on campus in uniform, uh, Army uniforms. Um, I got interested in, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, what they were up to. And um, by the spring of uh, 2000, excuse me, uh, uh, 1987, um, I, I thought, okay, um, let me see what this ROTC stuff is all about. Um, so I started and enrolled in, uh, uh, ROTC and, uh, by the spring of, uh, 84, I knew that, uh, I wanted to serve, uh, on active duty. Um, I ended up enlisting in the, uh, National Guard as an infantryman, um, the, um, Alpha Company, uh, 2nd of the 130th Infantry, which was right up the road in Mattoon, Illinois. And I went to basic training that summer. Now, I was about 5'7", 145 uh, going into college. I came out of basic, you know, at my current height and weight and um, got uh, really involved in everything that uh, campus offered um, and was uh, actively um, working in the you know National Guard billet As well as uh, going through ROTC. Um, Being the first to graduate, uh, having my family come up um, after I graduated and was commissioned active duty infantry, I ended up having an alcohol related incident within that week of uh, celebrating. The uh, ROTC program uh, went ahead and uh, disenrolled me. Uh, The date of effectiveness was before the uh, West Point commissioning, so. They chose to disenroll me. Uh, I was um, I was ashamed. I was embarrassed of what had happened. Um, so I, um, after taking care of what I needed to, I just went to the recruiter and said, "Enlist me on active duty. Um, send me to the 82nd if you can, and um, you know, let me do that." Um, I um, ended up uh, ended up uh, being allowed to uh, enlist. I received a medical waiver. I had a medical condition, um, that, um, was questionable at the time. So, um, I received that waiver and I reported to, uh, Fort Benning. By then I had gone to basic and AIT. I had to go to AIT again. And then I went to jump school. I was an E3 and I ended up, um, being assigned to the 82nd airborne division to, uh, 2nd brigade, the 325, to the 4th battalion, 325, the Bravo company to, um, you know, uh, the platoon that I was just a rifleman. So I arrived there in the summer of 1987. And um, by summer of 88, uh, I went to ranger school. Um, From there, I went to jump master school, um, multiple uh, field training exercises. Mm -hmm. I was uh, promoted to sergeant. um, And then I tried out for the scout platoon. The scout platoon was a unique... A platoon, uh, All the Ranger qualified uh, EMs and NCOs uh, were selected. They had a really brutal uh, PT test, um, which I didn't pass uh, because I couldn't climb the rope uh, 10 times. It was required after a full PT test. And um, so partied that night and I got a knock on the door on a Saturday morning. And there was a staff sergeant that knocked on the door and he was one of the squad leaders. And it was about seven thirty in a Saturday morning, living in a barracks. He said, "Martinez, grab your PT gear." I said, "Yes, Sergeant." And, uh, so he took me into Area J and dogged the hell out of me, and then he got me on the ropes, and he made me climb the ropes until you know I could climb them. And then that Monday morning. I'm all, I'm, I'm completely beat. And the Monday morning he, uh, platoon sergeant and uh, him come and grab me and make me take the test again. And I passed. And so I went into wow. the scout, scout platoon, right. You know, and I was just like, okay. So I went from Bravo company up to headquarters company. I was in a scout uh, platoon. I was made a scout squad leader, immediately went into the field, um, started, you know, operating as, you know, one of the scout squads and we support, one of the line companies. And so we do all the reconnaissance right. for the line. Right. Companies. Did you think you were going to pass? Um, as far as, as um, when he went
1: after he had beat you up for a couple of days and then brought you out that Monday morning to take it going into I, it, had, like- no, I,
0: I had no choice. <laughs> I, I really didn't have a choice in my mind. Um, this is what I wanted to do. Right. Um, right. I wanted to be part of the elite within the elite. Um, I had, you know, gone to ranger schools in E four, And it started a a cascade of more, um, uh, more EMs going. Um, We had a uh, crusty command sergeant major, a guy named Duke. Um, He ended up uh, going to the second of the 75th and he jumped in with them at Panama. There's a whole story about Duke, but Duke basically was like, you know, the mentor to any Joes that were just, you know, the best in the field. Um, And, um, he had, um, basically been my mentor and a couple other sergeants mentors. And in fact, he had selected who got re- to represent, um, the battalion for the 45th anniversary of D-Day, which was in the, um, you know, June of 89. So there's five of us that got to go and he pulled us aside and he said, okay, um, when you guys go there, um. The 3rd Brigade Panthers, uh, the 5th, uh, they get to lead the contingent. Um, they're, they have a uh, pink panther, a stuffed pink panther that they give to the junior lieutenant that has to secure and protect it. I want that. I want you guys to take that when you're over there. So, of course, we go over, we fly, and uh, jump into Aldershot, England, and hang out with the fr- first British Paras. as we get partnered up with the British para, and um, <laughs> those guys are insane. Um, we landed on their drop zone and they had like this, you know, British uh, breakfast for us and beer. So they get us drunk. Then we road march from this uh, drop zone to into the town of Aldershaw. Um, and then we have to do this obstacle course. And then we have to get into our dress mess and have like, a, you know, like little official hosting of the regiments. And then we got to hang out for a day or two training, and then we, um, you know, get, uh, kid up, and then we jump into Normandy. Um, then we partied there uh, and, and, and celebrated. That seems to be a consistent and, theme. There's always a party involved somewhere. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> paratroopers will celebrate the forty fifth anniversary. I mean, John Steele was still around. He showed up. Um, we uh, just had a tremendous time, and, of course, we went ahead and secured the uh, Pink Panther Um, we were able to go ahead and uh, ship it back. Uh, We had some friends uh, with the Air Force unit that we shipped it back and we gave it back to Sergeant Major Duke. Sergeant Major Duke then went ahead and uh, put it on a uh, pole and then drove around in front of the Bible Fifth headquarters and showed it off. And, um, you know, that was the kind of guy in the mentality. I mean, this is 87, 88. It was, you know, just a, uh, you know, uh, 800 paratroopers. And our battalion commander who showed up, a guy named John Vines, uh, who ended up becoming a Corps commander for the 80s, uh, for 18th Airborne Corps and oh. commander the 82nd. Uh, he was very instrumental, too, in uh, mentoring me. Um, and he recognized that uh, I had, you know, some leadership challenge, you know, some leadership potential. And I hadn't said a single word to anyone except for my fellow Joe brothers of what had happened to me. I was I was embarrassed. And there was a, um, a room inspection um, and uh, they came in to check out the room and inside of my wall locker was this folder and they pulled the folder out and here's all this paperwork, uh, a copy of my commission, a copy of my disenrollment papers, and um, they ended up showing it to the old man. Well, um, he didn't say much about it. Um, and then shortly you know, thereafter, we uh, got ready for Panama uh, in the sense of um, – we were going to go on block leave, and uh, we were getting ready to go on block leave, and all of a sudden they called us uh, in, and the platoon sergeant showed up and uh, cut the cable to the payphone where everyone was making trying to make phone calls. Uh, MP showed up and wrapped the building up in concertina wire, um, bag and baggage. You know, it was interesting. Um, our rucksacks for DRF uh, status for division ready force status we always had a laundry bag in our map flap and we didn't know what it was for. And they're like, ah, it's just in case we get deployed. And then we had uh, ammunition cards, these little like three by five cards that like laid out what you're um, going to be assigned, what your basic load, you know, how many laws you're going to get, you know, grenades, smoke grenades, etc. you know? So we get on the va- we get on the rocks and, you know, they're like, all right, pull your, um, uh, pull your, um, uh, laundry bag out and they issued us their card. We're like, okay, this is real. Uh, we got on the cattle trucks, got escorted down a green ramp. I ran into the platoon leader and he's like, okay, you know, all the squad leaders together and we went ahead and, and started planning right there on the spot. We took those um, laundry bags and got in line and then they just started filling up with uh, everything we were going to need. And uh, then we were like, okay, no matter how how heavy our rucks were during training or whatever, this is this is the real deal. Right, and uh, yeah, so um I don't know if you want me to go on about uh, Panama, but I guess. no thats
1: that's where I wanted to go next i mean listen it's a it's one of those um military engagements that not a lot of people got to take part in. There are only a select few units that got to take part in it. we've told the story a couple of times about it uh through through several other guests on the show, but I'd love to hear your perspective. What was your role? what was your mission? what were you told going in all of that
0: sure, so um Fourth of the 325 was not on the DRF 1, 2, or 3. So nine battalions, one through nine, each number designates a different readiness status. But um, because the 1st Brigade had one of its battalions already at uh, in Panama under the guise of Joint Operation Training Center, they needed another battalion. And because we were on a support cycle, we were short one company. And one of our companies um, was at... Uh, the old uh, Joint Readiness Training Center is Op 4 at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. And so we ended up having to bring in a company from first of the 505th to round out our whole components. So we had three line companies, uh, our Delta company, and then our headquarters company, a you know, mortar platoon, a scout platoon. I was a squad leader, and I had a squad that um, was um, – Operationally assigned to Alpha Company, one of the line companies, and so we were going to do whatever their, t- you know, whatever their recon mission requirements were for their, their task and their purpose. That was our mission, and um, we got alerted early on the nineteenth, um, and uh, by the evening uh, we had gone through our troop cleaning procedures. We had done our packing. We started rigging. And an ice storm uh, came in. Now, there were supposed to be a total of 20 uh, C-141s that were going to st- uh, stag departure leave from Green Ramp at um, at Fort Bragg uh, with a TOT time on target of approximately 1.30 um, a.m. on the 20th. Mm. Um, the drop zone um, for us was... Um, the international airport. Now, there's a civilian side of the uh, international airport in Panama City and then Tacumen military airport. Um, We were um, supposed to um, land shortly after the airfield would be secured uh, by one of the ranger battalions and then marshal and uh, get to our rally points and then do a helicopter insertion um, to go approximately... Uh, 15 to 18 miles uh, due east to Fort Cimarron. Fort Cimarron was due east, just east of the Picaro Bridge. And Fort Cimarron was where the Battalion 2000, which was the Panamanian Defense Force. Uh, They uh, had uh, V-150s and V-300 motorized vehicles with heavy machine guns. And upon uh, being alerted, um uh, they and we suspected they would be moving to some high ground and be able to interdict the drop zone. So it was really important for us to land secure, get on um, you know, our um UH sixties you know, um and get to the objective and prevent that from happening. Uh our squad mission was to be inserted and then do reconnaissance for Alpha Company was going to be the assault company for taking down Fort Cimarron and securing it. Um, so we load up on the planes um and um with this ice storm they need to get um the icer machines and de-ice the wings and so instead of having sure. the aircraft fly in sequence um it's interrupted um and so uh, we're not able to go ahead and get uh, the number of aircraft out but the decision is still to go with the uh, time of target um between 2 and 5 a.m. now um a one thirty time on target allows for the A2C to open up and, and allow for wing to come in. Um, because of the um, staggered arrival of aircraft from the 82nd with its paratroopers and the um, soft resistance on the uh, civilian side of the airport and more so on the military side of the airport, Um, there was some confusion as to how it was that we're going to actually be able to go ahead and secure the, the drop zone, but the decision was made. And so, um, because I needed to be at the front end of where my squad needed to be at the front of the drop zone, when the doors open up, the first guys out are going to be at the lead edge of the drop zone. And then by the time I get out of the aircraft with my squad, I'm going to be on the, on the front end of the drop zone. That's in theory. Um, so we get up, and the doors open up, and um, we're dropping to about five to 600 feet uh, AGL. Normally, you jump at about 1,000 to 1,200 feet uh, right. AGL, but we're going to jump at 500. One, less time in the air to get on the ground quicker, right? Um, and depending on which aircraft and who you talk to um, and what they saw, um, and I'll leave that at that, um, there was still some, you know – Uh, Small arms engagement going on, and there was tracer fire being fired, and some planes were, you know, uh, actioned on, and others were. What I recall uh, is that the plane started banking away, and the red light went on. And I was about, you know, five uh, miles while I was still left to exit. And there was two other uh, paratroopers behind me, and we just kept pushing right past um, the uh, safety who was trying to hold us um, from, and the AJ from trying to exit. We were getting off the plane no matter what. Oh, wow. So we got out and because of the way it banked, um, we're no, I was nowhere near the drop zone. In fact, <laughs> um, I, I landed to the Southeast on the other side of the perimeter fence uh, in a swamp. Um, and um, as soon as I got on the ground, I just went ahead and released my risers. I didn't even, I just, I still had my harness on in the morning. Um, I pulled my, uh, my, 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 uh, my weapon out, um, went ahead and um, loaded and, um, you know, started to uh, check my azimuth and where were, I was at, tried to get my bearings. And there were was, you alone? Was there anybody else around you? Not not, not initially, no. Okay. Um, and, but I heard I heard exchange of gunfire and I heard, you know, planes roaring and um, it was it was quite dark. Um, there was some light coming from the airfield that I could see and make out. And I was about 175 meters in about, you know, uh, knee deep. Um, kind of thrush grass brambles. Um, and I made it to the perimeter um, and there was some lighting and I saw this fence and I was like, all right, I got to get on the other side somehow. <laughs> and um, I'm like, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to have to climb over this thing. So um, like a dumbass, I throw my my ruck over. Right. Um, right. And then I start scaling it and all of a sudden I hear a, hey, hey. And I look down and one of my guys is Vietnamese kid, uh, uh, PFC Dang. And uh, he never called me by my last name properly because he couldn't pronounce it. But it, I was Sergeant Marty to him. Sergeant Marty! Sergeant Marty! I'm like, Dang, what are you doing? And uh, basically goes, why are you climbing? I say, I got to get over. And he goes, that's what we got bayonets for. So, I was so he had pulled his bayonet out and he had basically... Uh, clipped out a little circle or a little you know <laughs> loop for him to crawl through. And now I'm I'm hanging That's over great. this fence, caught up in my LBE, and there's a bunch of shit going on. And I'm like, all right, this is great. So I thump to the ground, throw my rock on, and then we take off and we start running into more and So I had a I had to secure uh, the rest of my squad, um, kid named Daley, kid named Taylor. Um, and we're moving um, along, we finally hit the tarmac. And, um, sense of relief, yeah, I guess, all, right? There's all stuff going on in the tarmac, right? You know, and there's, you know, some, uh, the DZSTL teams on the ground, they're trying to clear the tarmac because, you know, they've got, a, they've got uh, some aircraft that have to land. In the meantime, some other planes are coming over, dropping paratroopers, you know. Um, and so we get to the front of the, uh, assembly area, we set up in the assembly area, I set up my comms, um, I get a hold of, uh, battalion, uh, I can't get a hold of the PL. Um, can't get a hold of platoon sergeant get a hold of um, another squad and um, we're in position and then um, the rest of the battalion starts setting up and collecting up the sun starts coming up it's about oh uh 6 uh, we're supposed to be already in aircraft um, but because of the way in which the division was arriving on the airfield they delayed the actual air assault to about 0730 in the meantime we're you know, full security. Um, we're going over our plan. Um, we had gotten word that, um, battalion 2000 had started to deploy, if not deployed from, uh, Fort Cimarron. And, um, there was a, a seventh group that had inserted, uh, 24, uh, uh SF, uh, uh, members from their, uh, their unit, um, into Pekaro, um, which was uh, on the near side of the Picaro Bridge. The uh, Picaro River ran north-south, uh, Picaro Bridge, Picaro, and then Fort Cimarron on, on further east of that. And they had arrived there at about, oh, maybe 1:32 in the morning. Um, they had just gotten in position. And V2000, uh, no, Battalion 2000 started deploying out of Fort Cimarron. And uh, they were able to go ahead and get an AC-130 gunship um, and um, uh, engage uh, the column and take out um, with uh, initial with some laws. They took out the first um, uh, vehicle and then they started engaging with small arms and then they brought in uh, AC-130 uh, that went off station and got another one. And that broke up the attempt by Battalion 2000 to cross the bridge. Um, they fled from their position. They returned back to post. We got some intel that said, okay, they tried to cross the bridge. It didn't happen. We can expect stiffer resistance when we come into the, to the fort, Fort Cimarron. Birds arrived. Uh, there's 12 Blackhawks. Uh, the plan is to go ahead and do two sorties. We're going to go ahead And get on his aircraft. Well, luckily, we uh, rehearsed at uh, the green ramp. Um, We took the uh, seats out of a a UH UH-60, and we rehearsed getting in the UH UH-60 without any seats. Never did it in training. Never did it at all. And all we were going to have was the straps, doors open, and the gunners. Birds land. No seats. We get on. We throw our rucks on. We get on. Straps on. And we're just hanging on, all pointing our weapons out, low nap of the earth. And um, my old first sergeant uh, from Bravo Company, uh, great American, uh, Willie West, he's smoking a cigar, sitting on on his pal. And he's like, this is like Vietnam. And we're like, oh, no, what the hell did we just get ourselves into? You know, if Willie's looking worried, we got to be worried. Right. You know, and then he just looks over and he goes, do what you need to do and the plane land or the uh, the helicopter lands and they just basically throw us off, you know, uh, not very tactical, but we, you know, we've got to go to our insertion point and then, um, we ruck up and we move out. Um, we are now, um, east of the Vicaro, uh, uh, river. Um, the other two scout squads, uh, one goes North, one goes center, one goes South. I got the center spot. Um, and we basically have to recon the objective um, to set up the, the assault line uh, for the next wave that comes in with ALF company. Um, and so while that's ongoing, we're moving forward and we're trying to figure out where the objective's at, you know, and, um, you know, cover and concealment. Um, and, um, I get this, um, call from the TPL. Uh, you need to go to Paso Blanco. It's about, um, a click from you. Uh, we believe we see some, uh, PDF there, go, go secure the village. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. Um, that's five of us. All right. We'll go see. Now I'm the only Spanish speaking guy in the platoon as well. Uh, I'm one of the only Spanish speaking guys in the battalion In fact, during the, uh, uh, troobling procedures, um, I was asked to uh, kind of like um, make myself available for uh, any of the intel that came in. So I did some of that. But nevertheless, um, we went ahead and started moving to this village and we started receiving fire. So we um, went ahead and um, we um, we secured our rucks, uh, left a uh, uh, two-man uh, team to secure that and set up our claymores and, and off we went. And uh, linked up with the PL, the headquarters, which is the the PL platoon sergeant, two RTOs, and uh, ETAC. Um, And um, we start bounding, uh, receiving fire um, into uh, this village. And we must have woke up the village or something happened because all of a sudden there's literally like, you know, 60 to 90 civilians just running mayhem as we're trying to figure out who's engaging us. Unbeknownst to us there's an element of the PDF that's engaging one of the line companies that's setting up for their, their assault. So we're like in this crossfire, um, PL holds our, uh, line of advance. Um, we go ahead and, uh, secure and fall back. He confirms, uh, that, uh, the, one of the platoons from alpha company is going to secure, uh, the rest of the, um, area there. Um, our sniper squad leader had gotten wounded, um, uh, Sergeant Thompson taking around round to the shoulder. So they're working on evacuating him. And then we had to go ahead and get to our overwatch positions. Um, so uh, we get to the overwatch position um, and then uh, nightfall um, happens and then they get ready for the assault. And um, um, uh, battalion, of course, starts calling in airstrikes onto the objective, uh, using A-7s and anything else that we can um, mortars as well um suppressing the objective and then finally the the line assault happens and so they go ahead and takes a while to clear um and there's a bunch of squatters. um pdf they go ahead and uh, remove their uh, uniforms and then had um retaining their weapons and they had right to either rally points wherever they're going um we get on the objective um as far as the scout platoon, and the scout squads, um, as the line companies are establishing the perimeter. Um, And, um, you know, uh, what does Joe want to do? Joe wants food and Joe wants a latrine. And the three MREs that we had and the water, it was gone, right? So um, what does Joe do? Joe finds, you know, sea rations from who knows when so those start getting cooked up and then there's an arms room so everyone's got to go ahead and like hey you know look at this thompson hey look at this uzi you know hey and i get this you know uh, recoilless rifle and uh, we get the scout platoon gets assigned a sector of the perimeter so that same staff sergeant who is the one of the, the squad leaders uh, he comes up to me and goes hey marty i need you to set this thing up i go this right rifle he goes yeah there's got to be instructions you got to figure it out but i need you to go ahead and establish a, a you know a field of fire and, and engage along this road you know i'm like all right you know so we, we dig you know our acs and you know set up our, our perimeter and um, there's some probing um and there's not much discipline return fire i mean it's literally the entire 360 perimeter opened up with some probing fire right so there's some probing fire let's say at like 330 and um, everyone opens up, you know. So you know, we finally get some fire discipline, and you know, um, we've been basically awake for like two days. And right. uh, you know, it happens, you know. Um, and so we're um, we're there for about another day, day and a half. You know, what does Joe do? Joe finds spray paint and starts spray painting. You know, eighty second this and eighty second that. Right, Gold Falcons. You know, that was mm-hmm. our battalion, the Gold Falcons. And of course, the division sergeant major and the division commander show up for inspect the troops and give out coins or whatever the hell they do. And they see all this stuff. And they're like, okay, so now we got to find a detail to clean all this vaprine up. Got it. You know, it's the typical life of a Joe in the middle of the shit. We get out of it because we're we're scouts, you know. And so our PL is really aggressive. He's like, hey, you know, we believe that there's a, uh, a rally point that these guys went to. They took their uniforms up, so they want us to go recon. Like, okay. So we would go off on like a, a day and a half reconnaissance of this, um, you know, satellite training facility, like a live fire range that the battalion 2000 had used. And um, we didn't locate anything there, but, you know, it gave us another opportunity to, you know, work through our craft or, you know, um, the way in which we would operate, right. set up high positions, observe, mm-hmm. sketch, send stuff back, go back and report, and so um, we get done with that mission, uh, dry holes across the board for all three squads. And um, PL comes up, and goes, hey, we're they're getting a bird there. They, they need us to go into uh, Panama City. We had gotten word that one of our troops um, had gotten um, killed um, from Delta Company. And there had been some wounded in a movement um, from one of our troops. Um, you know, uh, Delta Company uh, convoys um, outfitted with Mark 19s and 50 cals um, and toes. And that um, there was issues at Punta Petia airfield. And that's the airfield where the seal element had tried to secure where uh, Norriga had his private plane. Right. It was being held by a line, uh, a company minus of Rangers. They needed some reinforcements. And then they wanted a scouts uh, to then go from there and set up security positions around the uh, Papal Nuncetaria, which is where Norrega had uh, gone to, um, you know, try to hold himself in some kind of a hold status, you know, and negotiate some kind of a release. So by then, Norrega had gone ahead and gone into uh, the Papal Nuncetaria there in downtown Panama. <laughs> right, and hitting the church forever. That's right, yeah. right. And so um, uh, special mission units were preparing to do what they needed to do. And we were tasked as scouts to, um, get some rooftop or higher apartment, uh, triangulation and, um, observe and do 24 seven reconnaissance of the papal grounds and, uh, report back. Um, and then also uh, had snipers, um, that we had as well. So that was the mission. Um, so, um, after a, a pretty long night of trying to secure the uh, airfield, uh, intermingled with a, a rifle company, uh, we realized it's Christmas Eve, <laughs> and it would be the first Christmas Eve of many that I would spend downrange. Because uh, yeah. the following year, we we're in Saudi Arabia, so um, <laughs> no rest the, for the weary. <laughs> so the for, well, no, I mean that's how it goes when you're Joe, right? right? You know, right. so um, the. Uh, First sergeant, you know, got us all together. You know, like, hey, you know, um, we um, we honored the fallen. We talked some stuff out. You know, uh, dry canteen salute. You know, long night uh, pulling security. Um, you know, some some shots were you know engaging us here and there. You know, uh, no active targets to take down, and it was kind of this weird dance because. You know, we we're with one of these uh, line company minuses from the Ranger Regiment. And, you know, uh, 75th and 82nd, I mean, that's how it goes, right? You know, but um, it, we worked very well with them, you know, and then in the morning we went ahead and moved, and they, they took us down to where our, you know, link-up point was. Now, at, at this point, in and around Panama City, around New Zeteria, the, there had been some checkpoints established by MPs um, as well as the fifth infantry division had uh, some of its mechanized uh, 113s there. So there was a bridge. There was some high-rise apartments and stuff. I spoke Spanish. Um, Petunen sergeant, platoon leader said, hey, can you negotiate some of these? You know, we don't just want to kick some doors down. You know, we we need to go and get these three buildings secure. I said, okay, um, let's see what I can do. You know, and so we go and we're trying to buy, you know, whoever's running, you know, um, you know, these large, you know, um, um residential buildings, you know, these high rises and, um, all of a sudden there's this crowd by this hotel and, um, this guy walks out and it's, um, you know, it's Roberto Duran, the boxer. And, uh, he comes up to me and he's like, you know, does anyone here speak Spanish? You know, uh, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I need help getting my family out of from behind the security checkpoint, and we think that there's a threat over there. Can you help? And I'm like, uh, you're Roberto Durant. No puedes, mas, right? So he's like, yeah. And I'm like, absolutely. Sure. So I call up. They're like, yeah. So I call the talk. And one of the uh, uh, talk sergeants, a guy named uh, Sergeant for Class Thornton, who was in another line company, but didn't get a chance to go to the uh op four ended up jumping in and he got he got hosed and had to go sport you know 24 seven ops in a talk. So I call up and it's like Thorn I'm like, you know, hey I'm I'm on the ground here with Roberto Duran. He goes, Whoa Bub, you talking Roberto Duran? I'm like, hey Roberto <laughs> Duran he goes, I'll be right down. So I'm like, okay, so he comes screaming down, you know, I don't know where the hell the talk's at, you know, parking lot or whatever. He comes over, and goes, Where's Roberto Duran? And he comes up and he starts like shadow boxing Roberto Duran. And he's like, hey, and Roberto Duran takes off his shirt. He's like, says world champion. He gives it, he gives it to Thornton, and and then Thornton goes and he goes, get him what he needs. I'm like, okay. I go, hey Roberto, I will go take care of this, but I need three buildings that are going to be around this one location. I need to, like the, I need an apartment on each of them, looking in these directions. I'm sketching this out on a little three by five current. and he goes, no hay problema, hermano. See, si. so we go ahead down to the street get past the fifth ID, this go past, <laughs> find his family, bring them back across. They all hug and everything. And That's then they leave, you know, and then he comes back about a half hour later. And he goes, okay, let's go. So we go to these three buildings and, you know, there is the platoon, we squad, you know, we go up and he goes and knocks on the door, talks to them, you know, they exit the apartment, one squad into each apartment. We're triangulated. Yep. And yep. then for the next three or four days, we got the best Panamanian food from Roberto and um, <laughs> from all these people. Yeah, yeah, and I they were doing. Joe a was really crust. happy. Yeah, yeah <laughs> No, it was it was crazy, you know. And Thornton's right. just wearing his t-shirt, you know, like ah, you know Roberto Duran, you know, he's like doing his boxing stuff, you know. And he, and like Thornton like coached. I think the boxing team for the brigade or whatever. But so. We're doing that, you know, and we're basically pulling surveillance and there's all this kind of like, you know, rumor mill and mm-hmm. they're going to assault and they're going to, you know, the smoke screen, the rock and roll music starts, you know, and eventually there's a negotiated, you know, release. You right. Know?
1: Yeah. And it, and and, uh, it all yeah, ended rather so, peacefully. All things considered. I mean, we took 23 American casualties, but all things considered, it was a, uh, it was a fairly, you know, uh, relatively uneventful skirmish for the most part in the big picture of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. you know, but uh for you know graduating from college and the conditions that happened, you know, and right. you know working, you know, um and being part of that, you know, and one of the things that I've I've talked about later on in veteran advocacy is, you know, when you're a young trooper that is in an elite unit that has, you know, a high readiness value set and ethos. Um you, um, kind of are on a higher state of alert, uh, the rest of your life for the most part. And you have to figure out how to work through that. Sure. And, sure. um, you know, we, uh, ended up handing out the seventh infantry division. We get back, you know, we got to turn out all the ammo. We're, we, we think we're going to air land. No, we got to jump back into Bragg. We're like, we're going to jump into Bragg after all that. What if we get hurt on the jump, you know, typical Joe stuff, right? <laughs> we jump in. It was amazing. Um, and, um, we go back to, you know, um, regular life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Training, you know? Um, and, um, I want,
1: I wanted to ask you real quick, um, through all this, you know, obviously you make the transition officer timeline wise, when does that happen? Does that happen before the Gulf war, which is a year later?
0: Probably not. Right. No, what happens is, um, By August of 90, so we jump in in 89, December 89. We come back in January of 90. We go right in. John Vines didn't mess around. I mean, we trained. We went right back into uh, RTEPS. We pulled out the AAR, what we did and didn't do, right? And we went back out there. And we went back out there hard. And we kept training and training. And then um, we picked up DRF1 uh, August 1st of 1990. Saddam goes into Kuwait August 2nd. Bush says, um, you know, I'm going to draw a line in the sand on August 6th. We get alerted 18 hours later. We are running around a green ramp saying, okay, where's the NCO? Tell me what, you know, I'm supposed to do with deconing. Uh, What's an M8? What's, you know, we became, you know, okay. And then we had the mission of, you know, deploying. We were the DRF1. We were literally, you know, Packed into C-141, C-5s. Um, my seat was in a strap down Humvee to Germany. Um, the battalion XO's twin brother, um, Sitnik, uh, he was in Germany in a mech unit there, and he met us at uh, Rheinstad and uh, got us a bunch of food and stuff, got back on the planes and flew into Um, um So we landed in Dahran and um walked off the back of the aircraft now ranger school at the time had um desert phase and that was out in utah on dugway proving grounds and i thought that at that time when i went out there in the summer of 80 88 that i could handle the heat right mm-hmm. this was nothing that no one had ever experienced it was like a you know it's like a blow dryer just blowing on you from seven in the morning to seven at night right, you know? right. it's just it was insane you know and our mission was to establish a screen line um with the assets that we had and we we're waiting for uh, if you recall we had a pre-positioned equipment at Diego garcia and so a marine unit that was a mag tough had those um m60s They weren't even m1s m60 uh uh, A-3 tanks uh, come out and get shipped out. that were prepositioned. And they were supposed to link up with us as we built up, you know, um, our node at the uh, airport. And so the scouts, my squad was told to, like, you know, um, get to this dropout point as far as we could go and then move until we got into an established hide um, on a certain ridgeline and then, you know, be prepared for some kind of, you know, Iraqi mechanized unit that come into that portion of Saudi Arabia. That was what our mission was. We we're supposed to establish a mm-hmm. uh, screen line report back. And we immediately, you know, ran into problems, um, you know, um, as predictable <laughs> communications and being able to have, you know, uh, battery resupply, mm-hmm. um, our range effectiveness of our combo gear. um, we had to strap a five gallon jug of water under our rocks and that quickly evaporated. And um, about the third night that we were in our hides, you know, we heard some rumbling of tanks, We're like, oh no. Okay, right, you know, let's set up our TRP. Let's get this going. What's going to happen? And we ended up finding out that it was um, a Marine company of M60 uh, tanks, uh, Marine Armor Company showed up. And you know, we affected Link Up. We talked and we started trading stuff immediately. You know, they're like, okay, you know, who's got dip, who's got MREs, you know, whatever, you know, uh, batteries, you know, um, and then they helped set up the, the line. Um, we stayed out there for about another three or four days and um, more heavy units showed up um, and expanded the perimeter a bit and the threat level reduced somewhat. So we uh, ended up going back to um, nahran and then we went to this place called Jabal al Jabal. and. Um, and we initially were, like, in this, you know, cantonment area for about a week. We ate chicken every day three times a day or two times a day. And we were out of MREs. And so it was just, like, you know, chicken in defac, DFAC and then, like, just walking around training in NBC gear. That's all we were worrying about. We weren't doing any live fires or whatever, you know. I think we set up one range to go ahead and make sure that weapons were zeroed properly or whatever. But other than that, we are in a wait and hold. Um, then we got the word, okay you know, we're going to go actually establish a camp. Now the 82nd had gone to, you know, champion Maine, which was more established. Uh, Johnny Vines was like, no. And basically we got on these buses and jingle trucks
1: and all the wheels and we just drove into
0: the desert. And when we got to this one point, he was like, all right, you know, get out, like build your camp. And the engineer uh, detachment that was with us went ahead and established berms and set up, you know, concertina wire, entry point, you know, um, and set up this camp. And it was Camp Gold. And it was not with the rest of the brigade. Uh, the other brigade minus, uh, the other two battalions, and all those assets were stuck in champion. I Man, we were literally out. Uh, in the, middle of the, yeah, in the yeah, middle of the desert. Yeah, in the middle of
1: the desert. Now, all of yeah. this is during technically Operation Desert Shield. What changes for you when you get to Desert Storm and the actual combat starts?
0: Well, um, we have to... Take our lessons learned and figure out how to effectively provide reconnaissance support to um, our, our, our main force, right? So, um, we do some extensive training and we figure out our TTPs. And so, basically, with three scout squads, um, we can only go about seven kilometers technically to dig a hide at night and then hide there in the day. And then the next night, the next squad passes up and then they go there seven. And then the next squad. And so we would just cherry loop like this and then just bounce our combo back. Right. So we had to learn how to do all that Um, and all our high techniques and our navigation skills and everything. Right. Um, The 82nd gets paired up with the sixth French light uh, armored division um, and gets told that once the air war starts, that we're going to move um, by a C-130 and land at desert uh, airfield called uh, Hapra and be on the left flank of what we assume to be a uh, left-moving arc uh, into uh, Iraq. Um, the tap line road is about 9 to 10 kilometers off of the Iraqi-Saudi uh, border. Mm-hmm. And you got the 6th French, you got the 82nd, you got the 101st, you got the 24th. So that's the 18th Airborne Corps. And we're going to be matched with this armored unit. They don't have light infantry. So um, a New Jersey National Guard truck uh, transportation unit with five tons is deployed to support us. And that's what's going to allow for the 82nd to follow suit once the breach is made. Now, what's the breach in the area that we got set up? Um, There's some high ground where the 45th um, Iraqi division was set up and it was this escarpment. It was about a 200 meter tall kind of cliff kind of thing with a leading road uh, that kind of went up. Um, Scouts, my squad, we were um, basically conducting reconnaissance um, into Iraq Uh, to proof the uh, escarpment lane and to confirm uh, what kind of overwatch um, and units were arrayed as we would have to use this escarpment. The entire division, the French, would have to go up this escarpment to get access and then then be able to get on the road network up there and then move into Al-Saman, which was further in. That was the objective initially for the French N-82nd. Right. Separately, now, the just, for,
1: just for you know, understanding, Al Saman was way back from comparatively speaking to where the Iraq Kuwait border is. You know, you're, you're at the the back line of where the fighting is at this point.
0: Well, we are we are getting ready to launch and transition from the air campaign to the, to ground, the ground phase. Right now, right. we're talking from March fifteenth of ninety one to March twenty second of 91, our scout uh, platoon and line companies were doing aggressive patrolling to confirm that we'd be able to safely get up through the escarpment, establish our line of attack, and then continue. Um, And so we had to uh, infiltrate um, into Iraq and um, go on the ground um, and set up our hides, and then rotate squads through, and then establish there was a compromise that required us to get exfilled and there was a disconnect between a French unit um, that had air assets up and we were trying to, you know, as we were trying to exfill and and get to um, the cure up that had moved forward to pick us up, you know, we were afraid of some fratricide that did happen, not in our particular sector, but it did happen and it concerned us. Um, We were able to go ahead and get, We were able to go ahead and safely get back, you know, um, and um, we always had to go in debrief and we were able to confirm. We brought an engineer with us too um, to do soil samples and stuff. So we were able to go ahead and confirm basically the MSR for about the first seven to nine um, miles. Um, That was our mission Um, with active Iraqi units patrolling and in in position. So we'd have to go ahead and, you know, they, they didn't have any night operations or security. And so they went to bed and we just, you know, worked our way to confirm everything. Once the reconnaissance was done it was confirmed, they we were going in, the um, scout platoon became the QRF, a quick reaction force for the battalion. And we were given two of these five tons. And we sandbagged them up, jumped in, and then we followed right behind uh, the French as they went ahead and engaged the initial objective area, you know, and uh, there was, you know, T 62s and T 72s right. engaged and trench lines cleared. Um, and then once that initial objective was uh, taken, or this the initial part, as the division uncoiled and as the brigade uncoiled and its battalion uncoiled, everyone got a line, French took off. Um, and we just kept going after them, so to speak. Um, and then we just started seeing. Dozens and then hundreds of uh, Iraqi EPWs just appearing out of nowhere. Yep. Just
1: surrendering hands, hands up in the air, walking right towards you with smiles on their faces. Yeah.
0: Yep. So initially we started doing the five S's, and after that it was just yep. like, all right, throw some concertina, you know, here's a five gallon jug, here's a box of Marie's, you know, disarm them, and then move forward. Um, And we got to about, I think, um, just south of um, Al-Saman, and, um, you know, uh, it was 100 hours later, and they called it off.
1: Yeah, very very quickly.
0: (laughs) There was some training right before um, um, we got notified that we were going to go ahead and and cross the wire. So November 8th is when Powell uh, and Cheney tell Schwarzkopf that, yes, you get to deploy the v Corps out of Germany, and then... We're going to do this thing. Um, Vines had come to observe some of our training and him and I were hanging out talking and I shared with him everything that had happened. He goes, you know, um, I thought for sure when you filed and, and submitted your uh, officer candidate school packet that you'd be, you know, um, commissioned again, but that got denied because of, you know, the paperwork that was still in my file from when I had been disenrolled from the ROTC uh, commissioning source. He goes, you need to write your senator, write Senator Holmes um, and tell him what happened and um, see what happens. I said, okay. So I wrote a letter, um, wrote free mail on it, wrote it to Senator Holmes, uh, U.S. Senate, Washington, D.C., and off it went. Um, I ended up getting a letter back after we redeployed um, from the Gulf Um, and. It was like we received your um, we received your letter. Um, the uh, Department of the Army Inspector General is looking into this. About uh, two weeks after we'd gotten back, we got back in mid April. I had an ETS of uh, May twentieth, so I was basically you know five weeks out from ETSing, and um, I get a call or someone runs up to my room and says, "Hey Marty, you got a call." Downstairs at the CQ desk. I run down at the CQ desk. And it's the S1. And he's like, uh, get your ass up here to the battalion, Roger. I run out the battalion. And I see him, he goes, Um, you have to go see um this colonel in the Pentagon uh tomorrow uh to review your uh findings from your investigation that was made on your behalf. And I hear uh, hey, Warrior, and I turn around and it's fines. And he comes out and says, come in here. So I went in and he goes, all right, this is what's going on. He explains to me what had happened behind the scenes that there had been a DA investigation done on the second ROTC command to confirm why I had been erroneously disenrolled. Given my service record currently and um, what had happened, um, there was a due process violation. I was not given the appropriate due process to be able to properly appeal. And what it should have happened was that I should have been commissioned back in uh, the summer of 86 and then had that on my record. And then, you know, then move forward. But instead they had preemptively pulled my packet. And you can't do that. I didn't know any of this. Mm -hmm. So he gave me guidance and he told me who to talk to. And so I got in my car and I drove up to DC, um, stayed at Fort Meyer in the morning. I showed up at the Pentagon and class A Z five, um, some colonel met me, walked me through all the crazy mazes. I'm just walking around, going, "What the hell is this?" You know, it's the Pentagon. And um, brings me in the office, and he goes, "All right, you know, um, let's get a statement from you. Tell, me, tell us exactly what happened." I laid everything out, and he said, "Okay." He goes, um, "We're going to be recommending that you know uh, we figure out a commissioning source for you. So in the meantime, go back um, to your unit." Um, so I did. So you're back. Were you happy when you back. Heard that.
1: Hmm? Were you happy when you heard that?
0: I was completely shocked, ecstatic, and justified um, that that had finally unfolded in that direction. Look, I was no angel. Uh, I've had, you know, my problems. um, But um, as far as, you know, wanting to serve and and believing that I had earned, you know, um, a degree and a commission, that I should be a commission officer, um, that was unjust. um, And I had a chain of command that supported me. So when is does it finally happen? Um, I get, so I, I get back and um, I get notice that um, I am supposed to ETS, um, and then I would receive uh, orders and an update, and that I had been granted um, my commission and I'd be promoted to first lieutenant, um, and that I had a, a assignment of choice, and. Um, Basically um, I was told that by the chain of command um and I ETS. Um I spent two months uh traveling and visiting uh army friends that had ETS. One of them was in Boston. I went to go hang out with him. And he said, Hey, you know, you should go do some hiking, and hang out in the Mount Washington area up in New Hampshire. So um I ended up doing that and I ended up uh, working at uh, Mount Washington Hotel and hiking Kind of uh, processing, processing what had happened to me, and uh, enjoying the uh, calming influence of the White Mountains and hiking. And um, my dad, you know, called the hotel. They got a hold of me. I talked to my dad. He goes, "There's an envelope here." I'm like, "Dad, open it up, please." <laughs> so he opens up in his broken English and Spanish. He can't even really talk because he's just like brimming with pride. So he tells me, he's like, yeah, uh, you're going to be commissioned.
1: That's awesome. That's amazing. Um, you don't often see that sort of uh, swift justice in favor of anybody in the military. They commissioned yeah, you, that but was... also, you know, backdated your rank and gave you first lieutenant right off the bat here and choice of assignment.
0: This is, you know,
1: one of the more yeah. amazing things
0: I've heard of. Well, I mean, it happened and, you know, they found, you know, an issue of discrimination and an issue of, you know, erroneous uh, disenrollment. This right. is what they called it. Um, they had produced documents and added it to the file that weren't, they weren't true or accurate. Um, I didn't know anything about this and it all came out in the investigation. Wow. And so, you know, I received a direct commission. It was the only way that I could get it to commissioning source. Um, and um, instead of making me an 86, a year group. They made me in 1989. And it was 91. So now I'm a first lieutenant. I show up at Fort Benning. Um, I don't have an ID. I don't have rank. I don't have a uniform. I get a hold of one of the former line company XOs as a captain going to the advanced infantry advanced course. Um, he lets me crash in his couch. He loans me some money. I go to Ranger Joe's. I get a set of Class A's and I report to Second of the 11th, and I show up with, you know, first and second lieutenant rank in my hand and some orders, and they're like, Who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm like, Okay. So they get a hold of my unit in the 82nd, and the battalion commander runs out. And he goes, We are promoting this man immediately. So I had this like impromptu ceremony right there with, you know, a bunch of the cadre, and then they said, Okay, you know, uh, you're going to start IOBC. You have orders of the 7th Infantry Division. So, um, I um, ended up going through IOBC um, and then working my way out wow. to the 7th Infantry Division to be assigned as a Ref Platoon Leader in 521 um, in March of 92. So, from uh. 87 to 92, that's what happened. Wow. And um, if they could have ended there, then they could have ended there. But I'm after... After having those two deployments, and I just felt that was, you know, I was
1: a soldier. Right. There was, um, there was more to do, obviously. Um, I wanted yeah. to fast forward a little bit because the LA riots thing is fascinating to me. Again, I don't remember that. How does that whole thing come to pass? If you can just kind of give me the synopsis of it, of how it all yeah. comes together and what you do there.
0: Sure. So 521 Infantry is part of the 3rd Brigade. We are in DRF 1 again. Um, and um, there is, you know, the court ruling um, and the riots that right. unfold in real time. And we're at the Mount, the uh, uh, you know, uh, Mount Training Center, and they they come and get us, and they say, hey, you know, we're going. We're like, okay, we hadn't even trained up for any of civil disturbance. We that wasn't even on our radar, you know. But there had been a decision to deploy Seventh Infantry Division minus from a governor's request and George Bush, president Bush had gone ahead and authorized for us to go and work with, um, the state of California national guard and provide, um, you know, support because of the, um, the discontent and the violence that was unfolding, the destruction that was ongoing in, in Los Angeles writ large. Um, and so, um, we went through our 18-hour sequence. Um, we went um, from Fort Ord to Monterey Airport. We flew up to Travis Air Base, which mm-hmm. is where we had our DF-1 uh, equipment and pallets. And we flew from there down to um, outside of Los Angeles to a Marine Corps uh, airfield, and we landed there. And then our mission was to do community engagement in coordination with the uh, local law enforcement um, and allow the California National Guard to um, do the actual, you know, uh, clearing or anything that dealt with, you know, um, any violence and looting that was going on. So they didn't want to have uh, federal troops, per se, doing that, but we'd be in Overwatch. We are coordinating. And we are in the airfield, What do they do? They made copies of the civil disturbance manual and they handed those out. Um, And so we were learning how to, you know, do civil disturbance and with batons and shields and all the formations and, you know, the different rules of engagement of the army and orders and uh, how that was going to be done and the use effective use of smoke grenades and, and, you know, all the different kinds of scenarios. So like someone gets pulled out of your group, you know, all that stuff. Right. Uh So um, we went through that training and then, you know, um, we got uh, assigned to um, a um, uh, police department and my platoon did. Um, And then we had to go ahead and set up um, some patrols and uh, do some community engagement. Um, And after about 48 to 72 hours, things had calmed down and we could do our um, pullback from those particular locations. Um, now, this was a complete change in mindset. Um, yeah. Yeah, the 7th Infantry Division had uh, cohort units, so, you know, they'd get 800 enlistees to come in and get them through basic training and show them up and uh, in, in create a unit and then bring in NCOs, and that was one of the, the battalion that I was in had that kind of construct. And there was a lot of West Coast recruits, uh, that made up that component. I had, uh, two soldiers that refused to go. Um, they believed that they couldn't participate in that. And I had to go ahead and, um, you know, detain them. Um, and that was uh, a learning lesson on how that worked. Um, um, it was, um, a very difficult challenge to kind of get, um, a war fighting, you know, camouflaged up and, you know, doing what you're supposed to do as a light infantryman to okay um put some no, restraints on you. Yeah, yeah. Don't touch anybody, yeah. don't hurt
1: anybody, don't do anything. It's it's a
0: it's a definitive exactly. shift in mindset that uh that it is was a complete different. mindset. And then to see the destruction um that happened and, you know, listening to, you know, um everything that was going on in the news. Um it was it was it was eye opening. So it yeah, it it definitely was. Um you know, and, um, we, we came back from that, um, and, um, because we were in DRF1, they went ahead and did some e and so we did some emergency deployment readiness exercises, and we went up to Yakima Training Center, right, right. and, uh, so, I did straight on platoon, rifle platoon stuff at that time, and then, uh, I had gotten selected to be the scout platoon leader after that.
1: So, to this point, you've had three different, very, very different deployment experiences, um juxtapose that and, and again we're fast forwarding obviously but to Iraq and Afghanistan. Which one do you get to first? Iraq or Afghanistan?
0: Iraq. Okay. Um, so um yeah you're,
1: you're, you're it's oh three you're part of the invasion?
0: I'm Yeah. Yeah. I um previously to the um March of O three I had been detailed from the Office of the Secretary of Defense after a series of commands. I had commanded um, uh, Mechanized Rifle Company Alpha 27 at Fort Hood, followed up by HHC 1-9 Cab, and then followed by Delta Company, 3rd Infantry, and the Old guard So I'd been in three Rifle Company commands for 46 months repetitively, and then had been selected to the initial joint internship program, um, which allowed for a year at either the joint staff or the Office of Secretary of Defense, and then a year in the Army staff. It didn't have a school component like it does now. As was at Georgetown. So this was the pilot program. The Army said, this is where you need to go. So this is the first time that I had not been on the line. And so I went from, you know, battalion company level to OSD, and I had been assigned to... Um, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, which was a gentleman by the name of uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Rudy uh, DeLeon. And uh, Bill Cohen was the um, sec def. um I was a junior military assistant. Uh, and the military assistant was a uh, 06, and he popped for one star, and he left. And my boss, my report to was Brigadier General Jim Mattis. So I worked for Mattis um, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Um, for that year and then he left um, and then um, in August of oh one um, I got detailed over to the offices of vice president as a staff secretary uh-huh. um, in the national security um, component that he had within the office of the vice president. So I'm there um, in August of 01, 9/11 happens that with him fast forward we get ready for going into iraq um the drum beats going um afghanistan starts in october of uh oh mm one i'm missing that i've already been in dc for too long (laughs) i feel like Uh, i'm getting rusty i'm I'm not i'm just i'm going insane i i'm going nuts and so i'm working you know and prepping everything as we're getting ready to go into um into iraq And I have a conversation with the chief of staff, uh, Scooter Libby, and um, he he's like, you know, um, what do you think is going to happen for you next? You know, I'm like, you know, to be quite honest, sir, I'd like to leave immediately. I believe that I could get uh, uh, in one of the deployable units and I could be of service. Um, uh, It's humbling to be serving and working in this, but I'm an infantry officer. I'm not the rest of the military detail easy zero five oh sixes and this is what they do their fails etc i just got sent over here because i had a high-end clearance and um you know um i, I want to leave and he said well if you can figure something out um, i'll talk to the the vice president and um why don't you talk to the rest of your team i said all right so i called up branch and i just said hey I, i'm deploying
1: <laughs> get me on the first thing smoking out of here <laughs>
0: And the guy's like, well, who's going to cover Don on you? I'm like, I don't know. Um, so I ended up going to the patch chart because I had access. And I'm like, oh, 4th Infantry Division hasn't deployed yet. 3rd Brigade. Danny Barnett. My leader when I was a Joe. My captain together when we were in Germany. Dan, Jaime. Uh, if I show up in the next 48 hours, can I work? I don't care. Throw me in the talk. I just don't care. And he's like, well, let me talk to the brigade commander. Go, Who's the brigade commander? Fred Rudersheim. I go, oh. Head Hunter 6. Tell him that Savage 6 wants to go with him. I was the headquarters company commander for Lieutenant Colonel Rudisham. Now he's the brigade commander for 3rd Brigade, 4th Infantry Division. So, Half hour later, Dan's like, yeah, get your ass here. I said, okay. So I went home. I told the wife. She got, you know, very upset. kids got upset. <laughs> I got on a plane. I stopped in Dallas to say hi to my parents real quick. And then I flew into Colorado Springs. Danny picked me up, went to get TA-50, went to get my sensitive items, had dinner with the Rudashimes, got on a plane and flew over and landed in Kuwait. Um, and then I served as the TAC, Tactical Assault Command, uh, OIC, for the 3rd Brigade. And so we had a attack component and then the the rest of the the brigade we had one uh, eight infantry one twelve infantry and three six eight armor. It was a mech heavy brigade. Um, and as you're aware, you know um, because of the Turkish government's decisions to deny access for the fourth infantry division, which allowed for the one seventy third to go ahead and jump in northern Iraq, you now had twenty containerized ships bobbing up and down in the Mediterranean, so they're able to get through the Suez and then go ahead and get to the port in Kuwait. And the 4th ID showed up. And those 20 containerized ships that went in sequence showed up in different sequence. So the order of march that was supposed to be 1-2-3 became 1-3-2 for the brigades and the 4th Infantry Division. We were doing, um, you know, reception staging, uh, uh, orientation and integration tasks, get everything ready. We didn't have stuff that we needed for all the Bradleys and tanks and artillery and recovery units and everything, all all those assets were intermingled, comms, gear, antennas, whatever. And um, General Ordierno decided to go ahead and, um, because everything was, I mean, the the 3rd Infantry Division, the 1st Marine Division, that was already going on. They were were tipping into, you know, uh, Baghdad at the time. And so um, the Iron Horse Division went ahead and decided to go ahead and launch um across the berm in hats. So we had to get in hats because we didn't want to have a big maintenance issue coming out of this Kuwait. So we drove in huts, literally in the vehicles on these huts, um, which are the uh, you know heavy equipment, uh, tactical trailer trucks uh-huh. that you can get a track on there. And we drove them up just south of Baghdad and um, we went ahead and down-ramped, and then we went ahead and got through Baghdad, uh, passed uh, through Third ID, Biap, um, and then um, into uh, Samara, um, Tikrit, Kirkuk, back down to El Salmaniya, back to Balad, and back to Samara, um, and conducted operations there. Right. Um, right. Now, that's the background. So how did my previous deployments rate with this deployment? Well, um, I was mechanized. I had commanded a Bradley company and a headquarters company. Um, I had been in Germany for a stretch in the first armor division before I got reassigned to first Cav. So, um, I was all army. I'd been in line, I'd been in airborne, I'd been mechanized. Um, and, um, you know, um, a brigade task force of that size can put some serious organized violence on the enemy. And um, it was my job to help orchestrate that and keep the tactical assault command uh, monitoring a very fluid dynamic um, because we were operating in a, um, in an environment where while major hostilities had ended, there were still, um, you know, in artful, political decisions being made about the status of the Iraqi military and the status of uh, political party participants. And so there was uh, a really unfriendly environment um, and um, a minority ethnic group um, had been in control for 30 years of a majority ethnic group. Mm -hmm. So the, the Sunnis had been in charge of the Shias and all that came out. And we were operating in the ancestral home of the Ba'athist Party, as well as uh, Saddam Hussein's family tribe out of Tikrit. And um, the 101st had gone north into Erbil. Uh, we'd put the third ACR minus out into Ambar. Uh, Marines had held into their area, and then we didn't know what the heck was going on in Baghdad proper. And we showed up in that environment by the end of April, mid end of April. Um, and so we started conducting operations, and um, there was there were, there were dozens of small villages and towns that we kind of liberated. Right. Where initially um, there was a lot of U.S. support and clapping and all sorts of stuff. Within two or three weeks, we could see that. That had changed, um, and um, whereas before you could drive around in a singular Humvee, we needed to have you know some kind of a convoy. We needed to have you know things happen. And one of our missions that we conducted, uh, Operation Peninsula Strike, was to go after some Bathists, ACMS, and some folks that we identified being on the most wanted list in. Uh, in this part of Balad, uh, which is nearby north of uh, Baghdad. Um, So we conducted this operation. We had three seven cab from the third infantry division attached to us. And we had one of the battalions from the 173rd. Um, And I knew a bunch of those folks. And so um, there was an engagement during this operation where a uh, seven and nine man, Iraqi element um, had engaged a platoon of M1A1 tanks and um, and he, you know tried to ambush them with some kind of pressure detonated and, and, and maybe an RPK uh, uh, RPK and maybe uh, you know an RPG. Um, the tank platoon quickly killed all of them and um, we showed up and um, the villagers showed up and we're sitting there with the brigade commander trying to talk to folks and identify everyone they were all Syrians. Uh, this is in early May, uh, I'm sorry, first week of June of 03. 03. Right. And we're like, okay. So, these guys thought they could take on a tank platoon. Now, 3rd Infantry Division, uh, they do the they're the rock stars of everything that happened mm-hmm. in the first 3 to 5 months of what unfolded in Iraq. But nevertheless, um We're like, okay, there's some rat lines. I mean, these are Syrians. They have their passports on them. They're equipped. They've got, you know, the ability to put together a pressure plate. How's this happening? And and it all went past everyone. It just was like, okay, you know, they're just discontent, and no one really understood that the insurgency was unfolding right there on the spot. And we were activating it because of our heavy-handed approach. We were operating in um, in a dystopian sense. We didn't understand uh, the ethnic differences and the religious differences between, you know, the people that were trying to help. Um, The coalition authority was putting out all sorts of guidance that was preventing us, you know, from doing anything proper. We're trying to set up a logistics operation to support and uh, we're starting to align um, battalion and company um, objectives and units for areas to operate in and um, i ended up getting orders uh, later that summer um, to report to the uh, marine command and staff college instead of the command and general staff college and so i left um and so in a nutshell all my previous uh, combat experience, um, which was varied and different Um, in this, um, I clearly um, was part of that group of young officers that didn't know that this was going to be um, a uh, extended uh, long-term generational fight uh, that required a different mindset. Uh, I mean, I, I recall, I recall, you know, Sencom staffers coming to brief the brigade on our redeployment in May with with full-up PowerPoint on how the flow was going to happen. We started having, you know, planning exercise that like, kind of, like, be gone by 1 July. Um, and, you know, we just uh, didn't um, understand the culture, didn't understand the local politics. Uh, we didn't have the tactics down. Um, we are very heavy-handed. Um, and um, when I got home, so when I got home from Panama, there was this beautiful crowd waiting on the drop zone as the shoot opened up and we floated down onto the the drop zone, you know, you see all this raw and, you know, come back from the Gulf and it's, you know, um, proud to be an American's plane. There's yellow yeah. ribbons everywhere. You know, yeah. you come back from LA and, you know, it's like, okay, hell you, you make sure that, you know, we didn't turn into, you know, some, some real huge issue, you know, and then coming home from Iraq, I, You know, ended up hitchhiking a ride. It got me out of um, the airfield in Kirkuk, Kirkuk to Cyprus, Cyprus to London, London back to D.C. where my uh, family met me and picked me up. And I got off the plane and I'm like, 9-11 happened. (laughs) Everyone's out. Okay. Okay you know tv monitors are showing some cnn stuff but other than that you know reporting other than that it was like okay so that's that's how Mm -hmm. you know that that kind of unfolds Um, right yeah so
1: all right up next for you is afghanistan you know and we've talked about sort of the differences in the variety of of battle that you've seen and the combat that you've seen when you get to afghanistan you're obviously in a much more elevated position now from a rank standpoint. So how does this compare to what you've already done in your career?
0: Right after the, um, right after graduating from the Marine command of staff college, I was, um, assigned to back to the 82nd. And, um, I ended up, uh, serving as the executive officer for first of the Bible fifth third brigade. And, um, after an intensive training cycle, we were on DRF one and, um, Once again, we were called as a PTDO, immediate deployment to Afghanistan to help secure Afghanistan in the fall of 04 for the national parliamentary elections that were taking place. The 25th Division was the lead CJTF 76 two-star command. And um, we were uh, deployed within three to five days as we got our um, equipment ready. Uh, there was a shortage of up-armored Humvees. And so we were literally, with the Corps Commanders' support, General Vines, um, we were um, basically up-armoring our own soft skin uh, uh, Humvees to go ahead and, and push over. So we arrive and um, we get um, assigned a sector in Gardez that included all the way north through Logar into um, Chankani and then down toward Organi and also Zermat. Um, we lose one company um, to uh, one sixth Marines um, up in Metarlam in Nangar. And we pick up one company of Marines, one six, uh, Foxtrot company, um, I believe, if not Kilo, but nevertheless, as um, part of our operations. Um, we immediately start uh, working contingencies to support the elections. And um, we are operating decentralized and company platoon operations. Um, the capstone of that uh, was a uh, operation uh, based off of Intel that one six had for a gentleman by the name of Ahmad Shah, yep. who comes to light again when um, I'm back in Afghanistan uh, later that next spring for operation Red Wings. So um, we go out and conduct this op uh, and try to do a, um, you know, kill capture mission. Um, that did not go well. That did not succeed. Um, the, um, Battalion had been split up so decentralized that we had lost C2 fusion and um, we were not able to go ahead and uh, identify that target and take him out. That deployment ended and upon return, um, continue to train up in that battalion level executive officer. Um, And one thing real quick that I didn't emphasize previously. um, I know that what unfolded in, May of 86 when I wasn't commissioned. Um, And the way that things panned out uh, eventually when I secured uh, uh, recognition to be uh, direct commissioned. Uh, I was a better soldier as a result of that experience by um, going back in and just being a Joe, earning my stripes and earning back um, what uh, had occurred. Um, I had been trained by um, phenomenal non-commissioned officers, junior officers, company-grade officers and field-grade officers and a battalion commander. Um, those lessons learned both in my self-development and taking accountability, self-accountability for what I did, um, separate to the actions taken by leadership in an ROTC unit, that's on them, um, really baked itself over the years so that by the time that I was back in my division, Um, I didn't even bring my family down. I lived in my office on a cot. Um, I worked continuously. Um, All I cared about was readiness and deployment, and I knew we were going to get the call. So the call comes in. We go into Afghanistan. We perform well. And then um, in spring, I'm supposed to head up to the brigade to be the brigade XO, and then the division commander makes a determination that I need to go be the brigade XO for a deploying brigade, uh, the 504th. So I deployed with a 325 as a Joe, and then 505 as a XO, and then 504 as a Brigade XO. So um, I was just all paratrooper all the time. And um, I did not know the staff. I did not know the Brigade Commander. I had missed all of the training exercises. I basically had linked up and um, had flown over just as the main body went over. And we assumed command of Regional Command East. That included a Marine battalion at that time. Three three was moving out, and three two three was coming in. We had eight uh, provisional reconstruction teams. Um, We had seventeen FOBs as a brigade, so we were um, quartered out of coast. And we were in constant contact the entire deployment. Uh, I know they talk about how nothing was going on, et cetera, but, you know, the casualty rates and and what we went through was uh, very dynamic. Uh, It was before Mm -hmm. COIN. It was before any of the surge stuff. And so it was very challenging. And that's why um, this particular second deployment uh, resonates with me now as I transitioned um, in the program that we can talk about shortly. Yeah. Um, on uh, why Afghanistan um, has been so prevalent, Um, mainly because I think being with uh, the vice president and in the White House and 9-11 and the war footing that we were on, uh, my efforts to get back with troops, uh, the Army's efforts to put me in these assignments in between operational uh, deployments, um, this one was more personal for me, uh, especially since um, we weren't able to go ahead and bag uh, Shaw and then uh, Operation Red Wings unfolds in the way that everyone knows that it unfolds. Just for those who don't know
1: Operation Red Wings, is the Mike Murphy the lone survivor, the whole uh, in 2005, June of 2005 uh, just for the reference that everybody understands what, what you're talking about when you say uh, Operation Red Wings. So,
0: Right, and, and, and as a reminder, 2-3 uh, Marines um, COA um, they um, they were taken on to us um, throughout their entire deployment. Uh, we ended up having the tail end of 3-3, three, three, then 2-3, and then 1-3 later on during that year that we were there. And this was an 82nd 1st uh, Brigade Combat Team overall mission right. that included the expansion of you know, the three lines of operations into Nuristan and to try to prevent... Any of these cells to interdict uh, in Nangahar and Jabad Road. And that's what was happening. Um, We, well, we deployed the TAC forward. And I just recall um, being on um, TAC set with uh, my counterpart, the Brigade Three. And um, we're, we're working through the compromise, we're trying to figure out how to bring assets whether or not we can range uh, there just south of Chitral, what the hell's going on in the ground. And unbeknownst to us, you know, there's a QRF that gets launched with the two CH-47s or the 46s that come out of Bagram and then go in. And then he's watching this feed, and then he tells – there's a silence. And the Merc chats in the brigade talk that I'm at go silent. And everyone turns up to where I'm at, and I'm talking to the three, and he's like – one of the birds just went down. Yeah. And it was dead sound. Yeah. And, that's, and he said he said one of the birds just went down. That this is going to be an albatross around our necks. This is not going away. We are here. And they quickly changed into recovery and then uh try to figure out how to work through the next few weeks and then we launched uh Operation Whalers, which was an effort to go ahead and get Ahmad Uh, Wounded, uh, ends up in Pakistan, killed later. But we then committed our campaign operational plan to Nuristan, into the Kunar, into the Korangal, which then set the template for the 10th mountain when they showed up. You know, and Wes Morgan has a very good book out, you know, uh, recently that talks about how the Korangal. Um, and our actions um, and how it nested from 05 forward until we withdrew from the Korengal and the impact that that had. Yeah. Um, and that that dominated our, our campaign plan. No matter what we were trying to do anywhere else, we can never recover from that.
1: Let me ask you, just because, you know, we're, we're just past the one-year anniversary of the fall of Afghanistan. How much did that resonate with you? How much of that, you know, uh, brought up, you know, old
0: feelings and old thoughts and everything else. Uh, I was approached at that time, uh, both by media and friends, and I refused to comment um, mainly because um, some of the very best friends yep. um, have remained in service and now senior leaders in the, in the army, um, They're senior leaders. And at the time they were working through a very um, inartful process, um, operation um to go ahead and do our withdrawal and um you know i have i have every bit of faith and confidence in their leadership and what um you know america's sons and daughters that are in the army under these men and women that i've worked for and worked with or who worked for me at one point during their careers um and who are responsible for that now they're now leading divisions or corps or the infantry center or um you know, G one of the Army these are these are talented, fierce, committed professionals. And so I I took it as it was a political decision. It was a it was a strategic decision. But as far as the operational um, that's where I focused. And uh, that's what I was watching. And I was trying to make sure and to understand what was going on. And um, it's it is a year later. And so, you know, there is an epilogue. Um, and we don't know where we're going to end up uh, as far as uh, the impact that's going to have. And that's why I've developed the program that I'm going to talk about in a little bit and why that meant to me. It kind of like was, you know, the light switch has said, okay, I think I have the experience and the skill sets to do something to help this unique um, sector of the Army and uh, the military and taking care. Uh, Uh, in a different approach to mental health Um, because I believe, yeah, (laughs) because I I believe the social contract has been broken. Well, yes. Um, And we can talk about that in a bit, but as far as how I felt and all that, I refrained, it wasn't right for me to. um, And I believe that uh, what ended up unfolding on the ground with general Donahue and his team um, is, um, it, 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 it was quite amazing. Um, what they had to endure and then the, having to suffer the losses uh, right before the gate, 13 um, uh, American service members died and um, everything that followed on, you know, everyone can throw all the political, you know, stuff on the wall they want and they can stick. But at the end of the day, um, you know, uh, a, a unit commander was given a mission with limited resources and had to work you know, under extraordinary circumstances and was able to save as many, uh, Afghans and, and others, uh, when they could and how they could, and uh, we should um, we should learn from that um, because you know uh, we still live in a very dangerous place where people wake up every day and want to harm us.
1: You've mentioned it a couple of times what you've done uh, post career, what you're trying to do in reference to mental health and, and uh, taking care of, of service members post military career. So uh, the floor is yours here.
0: I. Um, I started I started attending um, George Mason School of Law master's program to get a uh, master's in law and economics when I was working in the Pentagon as a joint intern. Um, that turned into pursuing a law degree, and I was in an evening program and working on that during the evenings. Um, I just wanted to be uh, – I wanted to earn a law degree. Um, I wanted to better understand international diplomacy, international law, um, contracts, uh, I wanted to better understand um, the rule of law. And I never expected to practice. I was just going to graduate and continue to serve. On The night that I graduated from law school, in the afternoon in uh, May of 2008, um, when I stood up to go receive my uh, diploma as a JD after earning a master's in law and economics and then my law degree, my whole family is there. Um, I, when I stood up, my motorboard had kind of shifted. I went to go address and make sure that the thing was hanging, you know, it was time for us. And I felt along my neck for whatever reason. And I had a golf ball size lump, um, just right there, had not noticed it. It was there. And I kind of knew right there that, um, I was very sick. Um, Went through. Uh, If you looked at the photo of me receiving my uh, degree, uh, facing the camera, shaking the dean's hand, uh, I looked like I was just one pissed off motherfucker Mm -hmm. because I knew what was happening. Um, Eventually, I shared it with my family the next day, went to Walter Reed, and was diagnosed with two very aggressive cancers. Um, They didn't know what to do. I went to go talk to the senior uh, army leadership. But we took about a week and a half, maybe two weeks to figure out after the biopsies and everything. And I remember at the time I was assigned to the Army staff and I was running the legislative portfolio for the Undersecretary of the Army waiting to take battalion command. And I was getting off of the uh, red line or orange line. I can't remember which one, probably the orange line from Walter Reed back into the Pentagon. And the doors open up and I look up and it's retired Lieutenant General John Vines. Hmm. <laughs> He's holding a briefcase. He looks up. He sees me. And he goes, Martinez. And I went over him. And he always had a habit of uh, punching you in the chest and saying, you're a great American. He punches me in the chest. And I just start crying. He's like, what's going on? And I told him. And he's like, you know, I didn't commission you for you to give up. You're going to go command this battalion. You're going to fight this cancer. You're going to live. And that's what's going to happen. And he gave me a hug. And he got on the train. And I turned around. The doors closed. And he saluted. Wow. Now, how does that happen? In the grand world of everything, how does that happen? I don't know. But that did happen. And I kind of took that long escalator up. I don't know if you've ever been in the Pentagon down in the subway, but it's a long escalator. Yeah. And I went to go find um, my boss, who was a two-star. And we went to go talk to the vice. I gave him what was going on. And um, and they said, you need to command this battalion. You need to fight through this. So I did. So I ended up going to 4-3 Infantry to command a new MTO unit uh, designed out of the 3rd Infantry Regiment. So that they had 1-3 Infantry and 4-3 Infantry. Activated that. And fought uh, a very aggressive uh, treatment with surgery and chemo and radiation. And um, in the spring, a year later, um, I was cancer free. Wow, and then the Army crazy. said, we're, medi- <laughs> we're medically retiring you. Wow. I was like, What? So, yeah, you're medically retiring you. I'm like, I'm about to start sending these packages that I've created, these, these unit packages in support of GWAT. You know, and they're like, and um, anyway, um, I was met to retired. Um, and so shipped the family home to Chicago. This is where we're from. And I joined them after getting released from uh, Fort Belvoir, Wounded Warrior. And uh, life spiraled. Um, on the outside, you know, everything was fine. On the inside, I, you know, was... Still thinking I was serving somehow. And I tried to get in the corporate world. It didn't work. I dusted off the JD passed the bar, became an attorney, couldn't get hired. So I just started working with the homeless veterans and homeless shelters, um, advocating for them. Eventually got uh, picked up to help run a law school clinic for veterans, uh, started teaching at the law school. The uh, governor appointed me to be the general counsel to the Department of Veteran Affairs in Illinois, set up veteran treatment courts, set up all these programs, worked the at community level, worked with Student Veterans of America as their general counsel, and, um, you know, spent a decade, uh, even though my marriage ended, you know, and uh, had to work through making sure my kids were resilient. Uh, my son and daughter both very are. Very They're successful in their own world and in their own right, and um, I had uh, maxed out um, the veteran advocacy in Illinois. Um I'd stepped away from uh serving as the uh, uh secretary of the VA at the Illinois level um and uh, relocated to uh New Hampshire. Um got on the ground in New Hampshire tried my um uh, uh, tried some uh, private sector work and, uh supply chain that ended during COVID and then um had spent a lot of time during the COVID period um hiking and trying to stay healthy, had some health challenges. And I started um, working with um, an alpaca farmer um, that's not far from where I live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and started working with a collaborative farm as I started working for the state again as an environmental law attorney. And uh, traveled to Peru, spent time in a Sacred Valley, and I realized that the geography is the same as in the Hindu Kush. And that there's an indigenous language, there's Quechuan versus whatever is being spoken there in the Corongal. And uh, the indigenous tribe in the Korengal wants to kill you, and the indigenous tribe in Peru in the Sacred Valley wants to kill you. <laughs> so um, I went back again in May to proof the lane. Um, I went in and spent time doing some community projects with the indigenous uh, communities, um, some agriculture work. And then um, started uh, uh, hanging out in Inca Trail, got into Machu Picchu, came back to Cusco, figured out what my program should be, which is about a 12-day event for veterans um, that have uh, experienced combat in the Korengal.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they're going to be screened and provided by a network of former battalion brigade commanders who served in the Korengal. Uh, first uh, launch is a pilot, the uh, 15 Veterans Sport Team in November of 23, with uh, three more cycles in 24 and two more in 25 for a total of 100. So we don't have anecdotal evidence. And so we have basic uh, real data. Uh, intent is that the veteran, once he goes or she goes to uh, the Sacred Valley and does their program, they come back. Let's say they go back to Oklahoma or California or Oregon or, or Florida, they're there. And they're tethered to the University of New Hampshire Department of Psychiatry and Psychology, and they're working through uh, their mental health while they're at home. And um, once a year, they come back to the collaborative farm to work with alpacas, the them, or the plant. Then they are tethered, and they're part of the network. And then we try to figure out if they want to give back to the community where they're at, so if they're in, you know, Oklahoma and they want to start their own program, then we'll find them the grant funds to go ahead. And so we're hoping to expand this kind of concept Mm -hmm. where you're re experiencing your geographic and uh, tribal contact and then come back home to build a community. You know, when I met with Sebastian younger after uh, he published the tribe and we've spoken a few times since, um, at the end of the day, um, it's really, um, a community that needs to be, you know, uh, united and we're divided. We are politically, socially, economically, and veterans can't transition. So what I'm hoping to do is provide an opportunity for them to, you know, um, relive, uh, own and accept responsibility for their action, for their trauma, and then to share that with their community and build. And so if we can build these community hubs like we did in Illinois when I was there um, as executive director of a nonprofit statewide, Um, this can work. And I'm hoping that my health holds and I get the support and um, that we are able to, in our own way, um, find a pathway for this select group of veterans that I want to prioritize because they're the ones that saw the most brutal fighting. Uh, And look, I get it there's nothing to say that Fallujah and Sadr city and the rest of what happened in Iraq. Right.
1: right.
0: And maybe my program can find another senior leader, a senior non-commissioned officer or senior battalion or brigade commander that wants to try something to kind of create those signs. It's a model. But um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if we move forward um, with all the noise that's currently going on, that, that, that social contract will will start forming some terms again that mean something and accountability, but accountability has got to happen at the individual level. Um, And then they need to move forward Mm. that it's not a stigma. Uh, In fact, it's a badge and that they've learned how to overcome those shortcomings um, and uh, found a network to do that. So that's the plan, you know, like all good plans, uh, you know, as soon as um, you know, the operation starts, you know, uh, shit goes sideways. <laughs> you know, goes, sideways. Right? You yeah, know yeah. that. Everything you know goes. that, right? Uh-huh. You know. Um, but, hey, you know, um, this is what Jaime is doing, and
1: well, I'm going to make it happen. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I'm glad that you're doing it. I'm glad that you've decided to share your story. I'm glad that you've talked at length. Like you said, you've never – Never done before. Um, it's, it's amazing to hear. I know people are going to relate to this. I know people are going to connect with you because of it. Uh, it means the world to me that you volunteered, you know, and raised your hand and said, hey, I want to share my story. I think that's amazing. And, and a continued luck and uh, continued success with everything you're doing with the program, with the alpacas in, in Peru. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, I think it's unique and it's different. And every time we carve out a new space for this, uh, we find more and more people who can benefit from it. You know, if I, if, every time we try a new way to get the the, the therapy and the, and the necessary um, mental health that, that, that service members and veterans need, I think it's an absolutely wonderful thing. So, uh, again, continued success. I wish you nothing but the best. Uh, I pr- certainly appreciate you, you sharing your story. And uh, Jaime Martinez, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground.
0: Yeah, uh, in closing, I, 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 you know, I've, I've spent uh... – um, I spent time listening to your show and other, um, you know, um, podcasts that are out there. Um, I think uh, what your team is doing is, is really important. It, it got me to Thank go you. ahead, uh, to kind of put together, um, and be able to do this. Um, it's been a long time coming. I've been off the net, um, just trying to work on myself. Um, I know that there's others out there, um, and you're doing a great service. So that's awesome. Um, I just want to, you know, for all those that, may know me or have, have served with me um, I just want to thank you for you know being a, a brother and sister in arms and for the sacrifices that we shared um, and that um, you know um, to keep keep doing what you're doing Thank um, you. keep fighting so thank you very much no, and I appreciate and, it
1: and, and again I want you back when you get your program up and running and I want to hear all about it as soon as it's ready to go and, and you've got some legs underneath
0: it we're going to do this again Jaime you and me All right, my friend. Thank you very Very much, and to your team. You know, God bless. Stay safe. Thank you. All right, airborne. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts.